0: You are listening to The Briefing, first broadcast on the 13th of March 2023 on Monocle 24. The Briefing is brought to you in association with Allianz Partners. Hello and welcome to the briefing coming to you live from Studio One here at Midori House in London. I am Marcus Hippip coming up on today's (laughs) programme. Reports suggest protests in Israel over the weekend were the biggest in the country's history. We get more on the controversial judicial reforms at the center of the unrest. Plus what to expect from the AUKUS submarine deal as leaders from Australia, the UK and the US meet in California. Then we get the latest on the largest banking collapse since 2008. And finally...
1: The only thing I do know is that we have to be kind.
0: One film takes the lead at this year's Oscars. All that right here on The Briefing with me, Markus Hippi. Hundreds of thousands of Israelis took to the streets over the weekend to protest against the government's controversial legal reforms. Organizers say that as many as half a million people joined the protests. This would mean that about 5% of the country's population came out to voice their opposition to Prime Minister Netanyahu's plans. Joining me for Maurice Alison Kaplan, former journalist for Harrods. Welcome to the program, Allison. Could you first tell us what you saw over the weekend?
2: Hi, Marcus. Yes, so I attended uh, the protest in a city called Netanya, which generally votes to the right, uh, right-wing supporters of Benjamin Netanyahu. And I've been tracking the city since the beginning of the, the protests that began about 10 weeks ago. And it has just swelled. You know, it started with um, a few hundred people. And uh, by the time it got to this past Saturday night, there were, uh, there were thousands. Um, there's disputed numbers over the total across the country. We're talking about counting numbers of crowds in seventy locations across the across the country, so it's kind of hard to get exact numbers. The official estimates are about a quarter of a million. And the organizers are saying it was half a million. But uh, either way, it's a really impressive number of uh, people showing up. And I think the the kind of people who are coming, people who have never been to protests in their life, not people who protest on the left, you know, for Palestinian rights or on the right when there's a terror attack and protests. These are rank and file uh, Israelis who are generally not involved in politics other than to probably vote every four years. And they are deeply, deeply disturbed about the direction of the country and uh, highly worried about what's going to happen if these judicial reforms pass.
0: Tell me more about what those protesters said to you. What are the most angering aspects of this judicial reform?
2: Well, the content of the judicial reform is uh, is angering because and the, the whole Israeli population has had to have a little civics lesson on this, pointing out that in Israel, there is really no balance of powers except for between the ruling party, you know, led by the prime minister and the judiciary. We don't have separate chambers of parliament. We don't have a federal system where we're broken up into states and there's real authority given to local municipalities. So all we have to balance, the absolute power of the prime minister is the courts. And now our prime minister is using his power to pass laws that would uh, essentially uh, wipe out the ability of the judiciary to, uh, to balance that power. And so people are... Are afraid of a dictatorship right now of this current prime minister, but in the future, whoever happens to win uh, a majority in an election. And that is uh, frightening people, and they are especially frightened by the way that this government, which has some extreme right-wing elements, uh, settler elements, and even more extreme religious elements, um, uh, would like these uh, partners in the coalition to pass some laws that would really deteriorate the quality of life of progressive, of secular um, uh, members of society, of women, of LGBT, and uh, and are afraid that the courts, which have been the biggest defenders of human rights, also for Palestinians, also for asylum seekers, um, for, for any minority groups, if you take away the ability of the judiciary to act as a safety net of the rights of those groups, that um, the, these uh, government um, coalition partners will take advantage of that ability and pass laws that could turn uh, Israel into a much more right-wing, much more fundamentalist uh, religion. Orthodox Jewish state and basically take away the way of life that they uh, they've been taking for granted basically since the beginning of the state.
0: Do you think these huge protests could make a difference?
2: Um, well, they have already made a difference in uh, in that. Um it's disrupted, I think, the ability of Benjamin Netanyahu to wield absolute authority uh, over what's going on here. He's being hounded by protesters, not only at home. I think the most interesting protests of the week are he showed up in uh, in Italy on a state visit to Rome. There were Israelis, crowds of Israelis who live in Italy and across Europe, protesting in front of his uh, his hotel in uh, in Rome. He's now headed to Berlin. There's going to be masses protesting against him in Berlin. Uh, his finance minister, Bezalel Smotrich, is getting protested in visits to Washington, D. And coming up to uh, to Paris, France, so it's essentially taken away the ability of this government to do anything at the moment, except for try to push through uh, these uh, reforms and engage in this kind of battle. Um, so, uh, so yes, I think it's definitely taken any kind of um, any kind of shine off of the the new uh, the new uh, Netanyahu regime, and it's uh, it's it's put it into full full battle mode.
0: What has been heard from Netanyahu himself recently?
2: Uh, Netanyahu himself uh, continues to spin his reforms as uh, a balance. Um, as a reasonable uh, solution to balancing what he sees as excessive power of the judiciary, he's called the uh, the protesters uh, anarchists and says that you know that they're trying to basically subvert the will of the people. That it's the people who voted in this government, and so therefore any kind of uh, major changes this government wants to take are you know have the have the nature of uh, of uh, democracy. Um, what he hasn't shown is much of an interest in any kind of compromise proposal and compromise solution. In In this judiciary reform only to say in his defense that because he is currently on trial for corruption, the judicial system is now. You know, uh, prosecuting against him, the Attorney General has ruled that it's a conflict of interest for him to actually engage in any kind of solution to this crisis. And uh, and now that's another battle that's being fought. Um, He's appealing to the courts to let him sit and try to uh, participate in some sort of negotiation for a compromise. So he's a bit hamstrung, because as a person who's uh, undergoing trial, he technically doesn't have the authority to try to work on a solution to this crisis, and essentially as Prime Minister he's the only person who could Um, who could solve it or fix it. But he doesn't seem to be showing uh, high motivation to do so. The legislation is continuing to power its way through the Knesset. They're trying to get it through um, before this uh, Knesset session ends at the end of March.
0: What do you think will happen next? Do you think Netanyahu can just continue as he has and try to press ahead?
2: Uh, I mean, there's all kinds of doomsday scenarios happening uh, with no compromise on the horizon. There are a lot of compromise proposals that are actually pretty reasonable, and there is room in between uh, what the government wants to do and what some reasonable legal scholars think would be would be all right to do, and there's a lot of behind-the-scenes negotiating. But neither side politically really has motivation to move towards compromise. So compromise uh, is a possibility. It seems like a remote possibility, but if it doesn't happen and this judicial reform uh, overhaul goes through as planned, we could be heading for a real, uh, constitutional crisis where let's say members of the Supreme court will, will resign in protest or, uh, try to rule despite the new laws and the, and the government will refuse to abide by what the Supreme court, um, says. So, uh, in the worst case scenario, we're, we're looking for, uh, we're looking at a, a a full on, clash between our uh, legal establishment and our judiciary and the, and the ruling government.
0: That was Alison Kaplan-Summer. Thank you very much for your insights today. It's 12.09 here in London. Here is Monica Semiseul with the Days of the News Headlines.
1: Thanks, Marcus. Ukrainian forces say they're facing relentless Russian attacks on Bakhmut, with both sides claiming enemy casualties. The country's president, Volodymyr Zelensky, says more than 1,100 Russian soldiers have been killed over the past few days. New Zealand has backtracked on introducing legislation to lower the voting age to 16 in the country's general elections. Any change in electoral law requires the support of 75% of parliament members, and Prime Minister Chris Hipkins said his government does not have that level of backing. And the movie Everything, Everywhere, All at Once has dominated the Oscars, claiming seven awards overall, including Best Picture and three out of the four acting categories. Michelle Yeoh claimed the Best Actress award, and we'll hear more about the winners and those who missed out later in today's show. Those are today's headlines. Back to you, Marcus.
0: Thanks, Emma. And now the leaders of Australia, the UK and the US are in San Diego, California, to finally close the AUKUS submarine deal. Announced in full tomorrow, the deal is expected to cost an estimated 200 billion Australian dollars or 133 billion US dollars over three decades. To tell us more about what to expect and the background of this historic deal, I'm joined by Karen Middleton, the Saturday paper's chief political correspondent in Canberra. Good evening, Karen, and welcome to the program. Could you just first recap a little bit, talk us through this deal and what exactly we are expecting from tomorrow's announcement?
3: Well, the basis of this, Marcus, is that Australia will be buying nuclear-powered submarines. Now, that's a big change for Australia. We've always had conventionally powered submarines. And it's controversial because we had a a deal with the french government to buy some new submarines from france and under our previous government under scott morrison's prime ministership that deal was cancelled and there was controversy because it was cancelled without a negotiation with the french government they were sort of effectively told after the fact that it was all over and that that was worth very many dollars to the french government and The uh, arrangement in in its place was a deal involving the United States and the United Kingdom to buy nuclear-powered submarines. And it's not just the submarine purchase. It will go a lot further than that in relation to technology transfer. But what we are seeing now in the next 24 hours is finally the detail of this. And what's going to be involved is Australia buying, uh, firstly, some US-produced Virginia-class submarines and then after that, a British-designed submarine with U.S. technology on board. So U.S. nuclear technology and U.S. weapon systems, conventional weapon systems. And so this is a huge thing for Australia. It's a great big change and it will, as you say, be costing us a lot of money.
0: What do you think are some of the most interesting aspects of this deal we don't know yet?
3: Well, it's a bit hard to say what we don't know. Um, but one of the big questions being asked of the Australian government is, a question about sovereignty because we will be taking on US technology, the boats that we will be buying are US designed in the first instance. They are created as a sort of a sealed unit. So there's a nuclear reactor inside these submarines and it exists, it lasts for the entire life of the submarine, which means we in Australia don't need to have uh, maintenance crews or it doesn't, It, it, it we you know, the reactor doesn't need to be replaced at any point during the the life of the submarine. It will last for the full sort of 30-year life of the vessel. But there's a question about who's going to be calling the shots as to where those vessels go and what work they do and whether or not Australia really will remain in control of its own foreign and defence policy or whether it'll become further subservient to the United States. Now, our Prime Minister says absolutely we will remain sovereign and and not be dictated to in terms of our foreign and defence policy by another country. But that is one of the big concerns.
0: Now, it's been estimated already that that this plan would actually create about 20,000 jobs in Australia. How significant is this figure? How
3: big of a difference could that make? Well, that's been trumpeted, that figure, quite a lot, as you imagine, in the last 24 hours, because two parts of Australia in particular South Australia and its capital, Adelaide, and Western Australia and its capital, Perth. are very excited about the prospect of getting a lot of uh, employment associated with building submarines, ultimately, initially constructed overseas, but and eventually built here. Uh, and also all the associated jobs, engineers, technicians, nuclear scientists, the like, um, not to mention the crew. But that is going to be a big question. Where are the people going to come from? It, it's all very well to say, that this will create a lot of jobs but it's going to require the skills that a lot of Australians don't yet have. For example, once we buy those interim boats from the United States, the Virginia-class submarines, they are enormous and they have a crew of about twice the size of the Collins-class submarines that Australia currently operates. So we need to find extra submariners who are a particular kind of naval officer because that is a, a particularly tough assignment to be submerged for that amount of time and that's one of the reasons they want to buy nuclear submarines because they can stay underwater for months at a time. Uh, so where are we going to get those people from and then how do we train them up in time to crew all these boats? So there are a lot of sort of unanswered questions still and people are, are wondering how all that's going to work but, but the employment figures, the headline figures are very positive.
0: Many questions indeed. Now, do we have an understanding of, of what this deal is going to mean for the Asia-Pacific power and security balance?
3: I think everyone is seeing it in terms of China, Marcus. You know, everybody sort of treads very carefully when it comes to the security of the region and what the prospects are for a conflict involving the, the major power in the region, but the all of all of our nation's defence posture arrangements are being reconfigured with that in mind or with that concern. Now, one of the reasons for buying submarines like this that are much more powerful than the ones we have uh, and and doing a deal that is costing so much money into the future is that it's a deterrent against a major power threat in the region. It says we're serious, we have uh, the capability to pushback in the event that something is going to happen. So all of these things are occurring with the concern around um, some kind of conflict in the Indo-Pacific region. And of course, China is the major player there. But we're also seeing realignment of security in the region. We've seen the the rise of the Quad, so-called, which is Australia, the United States, Japan and India. And our Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese, has just been in India cementing further trade and security ties. So there is a real rebalancing of powers going on in this region and concern about what might lie ahead.
0: Now, when when French officials found out about the Orcas deal between Australia, the UK and, and the US, they declared publicly that they had been betrayed. By Australia. Um, what is the status of Australia French relationship at the moment? Have they improved?
3: They have improved a little, yes, you're right. In fact, the former, the, the, the French president, Emmanuel Macron, accused the former Prime Minister of Australia, Scott Morrison, of lying to him. He was very passionately critical of that and the way it all played out. Now we have a new government that's been in office for 10 months, a Labour government. The previous government was a Conservative government and relations seem to have improved. It's interesting that one of the first overseas trips that Anthony Albanese made was to France to kind of reconfigure that relationship with the French president. And it seems to be back on track now. So I, I think the change of government provided the opportunity for a reset with that French relationship. And interestingly, it's also provided a bit of an opportunity for a reset of Australia's relationship with China, which has been very bad over the last few years. Uh, we are seeing a foring in some of those diplomatic relations uh, and uh, the prospects that things might improve there. So, you know, perhaps... That runs a bit counter to the the scary narratives about conflict. But at the moment, um, things are improved on the diplomatic front in both of those cases.
0: That's good to hear. Karen Middleton in Canberra, thank you very much for joining us today. You are with Monocle24. Silicon Valley Bank was the 16th largest bank in the US until last Friday. Now, SVB Financial Group has become the largest bank to fail in 15 years in a sudden collapse that rocked global markets, leaving billions of dollars belonging to companies and investors stranded. Joining us for more is Susanna Streeter, Senior Investment and Markets Analyst at Hargreaves Lansdowne. Welcome to the program. Susanna, could you first briefly take us through the chronology of events? This all started to unravel on Friday, right?
4: Yes, it certainly did. Um, in fact, uh, it was Thursday that uh, we really uh, saw the. Uh, situation escalating so SVB was considered to be the lifeblood of the tech industry providing startups with financial services which some found hard to access elsewhere and money really had flooded in as uh, founders were able to uh, get a lot of funding from uh, venture capitalists particularly uh, during the pandemic uh, when uh, the era of cheap money was in full flow but this razor-sharp focus on the tech industry appeared to be its downfall but it was It wasn't diversified across other sectors. And of course, then you had central banks hiking interest rates. And that really caused problems for its business model because to make money, it invested in longer term government bonds um, to try and make money. So invested depositors money in those bonds, which were considered to be uh, relatively safe havens. But the problem was, as interest rates were hiked, It meant actually the value of those bonds fell. And as its customers went through a lot of cash during the pandemic and what, or post pandemic, I should say, as uh, the era of cheap money hurtled to an end and they were unable to raise funds from elsewhere, it meant that they were withdrawing money, that it came a crunch whereby so many. Of the customers withdrew money that actually, because uh, the company had invested in these bonds, it was going to be short and couldn't actually deliver that money to the customers, and that's why the plug was pulled on the bank.
0: And what's also astonishing is that this bank collapsed in what in 48 hours. Do you think there were signs in the air already before, or did this come as a surprise? Total total surprise.
4: The rapidity of the collapse, I think, did come as a surprise. But certainly, if you look at just uh, how turbulent the tech sector had been been in the wake of uh, higher interest rates, although there had been some recovery uh, this year, and uh, the fact that uh, it was so highly concentrated on uh, this one sector, um, there is this feeling that actually uh, perhaps those stricter uh, regulatory Um, uh, requirements that uh, larger US banks have had to adhere to since the financial crisis should actually have also um, been made uh, compulsory for these smaller banks because this is where the weakness within the US financial system appears to be. Now, there isn't expected to be a systemic risk to larger institutions because they've had to build up their capital buffers since the financial crisis not just in the US, um, Europe in the UK as well but obviously you know there are continuing concerns about what this will mean for the tech sector going forward immediate liquidity concerns have been smoothed out because deposits will be guaranteed in the US and HSBC here in the UK has bought the UK arm but going forward um, just how easy will it be for for tech to raise extra funds and also find a place to park their money? Well, that just remains to be seen.
0: Mm, how how full is the picture we have at the moment about how dangerous this situation could be?
4: Well, um, what you're seeing is weakness in a smaller regional banks in the United States. A First Republic Bank, its shares have fallen. Back pretty uh, dramatically in pre-market trading by about sixty percent today, um, and also you've had uh, the banking uh, banking shares on major indices they've fallen back just as this uncertainty unfolds. Now I don't think you know when you're seeing the share share prices of companies like Barclays um, uh, and um, HSBC falling back. Obviously there will be some concern that HSBC is uh, buying the assets of uh, of this bank that has made headline news, but actually I think. Investors are looking about what this will mean for their uh, profits going forward because it could be that they've got a hike the um, rates that they pay to depositors, to savers, to try and stop depositors leaving and pulling out their money and putting it in other areas of the market, like, for example, in government bonds where they might get a higher return. And so they're going to have to try and stop that happening. So they may have to offer higher returns because they haven't been up until now. And so that's probably also why you're seeing a bit more weakness.
0: Tell us more about what governments and central banks are doing at the moment to try to control this situation. What are the priorities?
4: Well, HSBC has bought SVB UK. And so uh, there were negotiations going on between the Treasury um, and uh, the various big banks Over the weekend and before the market opened here in the UK, uh, that decision uh, was announced. It it was a decision made really to calm uh, market fears. And it seemed to do the trick to start off with, as did the action, pretty bold action uh, by the US Treasury. So it's moved to ensure that all deposits at SVB are guaranteed over and above the regular insured deposits of uh, 250,000. So that certainly did help calm nervousness. Um, when that announcement was made. But since then, you've seen further sell-offs because there is this worry that actually it still might not stop uh, depositors pulling their funds out of some of these smaller banks.
0: I know it's hard to predict the future, but what is the feeling? How long may this turbulence continue?
4: What we're expecting to see actually is the Federal Reserve possibly now press pause on further interest rate hikes. Um, Last week, there could have been three consecutive uh, rate rises that was being priced in by the market. But now there is an expectation because of this turbulence that the Federal Reserve won't hike rates further to to try and bring inflation under control because its focus will be on financial stability. So you could well, if this turbulence continues or gets worse, you could see um, some words perhaps from the Federal Reserve Chairman uh, as well. And uh, you may get a greater indication from policymakers that they are taking this more seriously and won't raise rates even further because they want to make sure that the situation doesn't deteriorate.
0: Susanna Streeter uh, from Hargreaves, Lansdown. thank you very much for your insights. It's 12.25 here in London. You are listening to The Briefing on Monaco 24. You asked, we delivered. Welcome to The Concierge, a travel show from Monocle brought to you in association with Allianz Partners. This week we take a stroll through one of the most historic
5: cities on Finland's southern coast. I set out to explore Porvo and its charming 15th century old town. Soon my tote bag was filled with artisanal chocolates and licorice that Porvo is famous for, as well as some great Finnish design. And walk the
0: renovated boardwalk on Miami's South Beach.
5: It's a public space on which life unfolds, as much for those who live in the area as it is for those just passing through.
0: The Concierge, in association with Allianz Partners. Listen via Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you get your audio. And finally, on today's programme, we are joined by Monaco's senior culture correspondent Fernando August Bacheco to discuss last night's Oscars. Fernando, you look surprisingly well-rested. Well,
5: I had a few hours of sleep preparing here for the briefing, Marcus, but it was always an enjoyable evening uh, with the Oscars. And I have to say, there was no slap uh, like last year when Will Smith famously uh, slapped Chris Rock. Uh, But it was a good ceremony, I think. A bit predictable. Uh, but quite a good one as well. What do you think were the biggest surprises? Were there any? Well, there were not... It wasn't a night of surprises, but perhaps I could say that uh, Everything Everywhere All at Once won seven awards, including Best Picture, Director, uh, Actress, Supporting Actor and Actress. This has been quite rare uh, in recent years uh, where uh, there's a division sometimes. Best Picture wins, but the director is another one as well. So I think that I would say uh, is one of the highlights as well.
0: Mm, do you think Rice films, right actors and so forth right. won
5: this year well I have to defend actually here everything everywhere all at once because it's been quite a special film for Hollywood because it's not quite a blockbuster uh, you know like Top Gun or Avatar it's not a billion dollar blockbuster but it's not also just a very small art house film and nobody watched it it it, it was so successful actually at the box office so I think the Academy managed to connect with people Uh, it's a very heartwarming film it's about family uh, but there's also elements of fantasy i mean just look at the speeches in fact we do have a clip uh, of the best actress uh, michelle Yeoh. she gave a very beautiful uh, heartwarming uh, speech i believe we have a clip and we're going to play it right now
1: for all the little boys and girls who look like me watching tonight <laughs> this is a beacon of hope and possibilities Beautiful
5: uh, speech there by Michelle Yeoh. Not only her, but I have to say, I mean, this has been perhaps another one of the speeches of the night for best supporting actor Ki-Hui Kwan, uh, who plays her husband, actually, in the film. I mean... Every he made everyone cry uh, there um, at the the, the event. And after, there's been some funny moments and very surreal ones. The cocaine bear was there (laughs) as a guest and apparently it was very close to Malala. And then Jimmy Kimmel says, cocaine bear, get away from Malala. Uh, I mean, that's what I like about the Oscars. I like those kind of uh, slightly off-the-cut kind of moments too.
0: So everything, everywhere, all at once won hugely at this year's Oscars, taking home seven of 11 nominations. What do you think that means for 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 Oscars more
5: widely? As I said, I mean, I, I, I believe probably the ratings will go up. I might be wrong because we don't have the numbers yet. Uh, but yeah, I think the Academy was very wise to choose a film that most people loved it uh, as well. Uh, and, you know... You're talking about surprises, actually, reflecting here a little bit. For Best Actor, Brendan Fraser won for The Whale, which I have to say has been a divisive film in a way. Some critics loved it, some critics hated it. Uh, uh, and I was actually thinking I was going to go for Austin Butler with Elvis, but perhaps last minute, uh, Brendan Fraser did manage. Also, uh, all Quiet on the Western Front, four Oscars, mm-hmm. mainly technical and best foreign film as well, but another huge success uh, for the Netflix war epic uh, too. But no one punched any no one this year. No one punched, and, and you know there were a lot of jokes about it. Uh, perhaps not as sharp as jokes as I would imagine uh, than to be. And of course, I have a feeling that Will Smith is not going to the uh, to the ceremony in the next five years at least.
0: So this year there's been some discussion about how films get nominated for Oscars and, and and what the procedure is in the background and how big of a part lobbying has in all this. Do you think we're beginning to see the ceremony slightly differently when we understand what's happening in the background?
5: I mean, there's lots of lobbying around and, 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 and you know, it's a long campaign which starts you know, probably actually the whole year, but let's say uh, definitely in November. Uh, but you have actors, uh, for example, Jamie Lee Curtis, who also won for Best Supporting Actress uh, for uh, Everything Everywhere, All at Once. She did such a great job at lobbying the film doing interviews and you need to be kind of uh, social with people you need to meet uh, everyone you need to attend all the award shows I think actually this does help uh, in Hollywood I know sometimes it can be controversial mm-hmm. uh, like in the case for best actress uh, for Andrea Risborough who was nominated for to Leslie uh, and some people said you know perhaps it was not fair her campaign uh, and everything but yeah there's lots of behind the scenes Marcus and now finally Fernando I know you have this tradition of of, of of watching the Oscars together with,
0: for example, our resident film critic, Karen Grisanovich, as well, who is in the studio often. What do you think is the right way, when you are not there in Hollywood, for example, what is the right way of doing that? What is your
5: routine like? I think you should make a party out of it. I mean, we did drink uh, champagne and popcorn. It was actually quite a simple menu at home. And it's lovely to watch with Karen, because one thing that she always remembers, Karen is American, right? Uh, and, and, I, and I think she sometimes she says, Fernando, because sometimes... When we're outside the U.S., we see the Oscars as one thing. But when you are in the U.S., so she knows actually, well, actually Americans would like this film and the Academy thinks this way. Mm-hmm. Uh, so she gave me a lot of pointers. She was a kind of expecting this sweep by everything, everywhere, all at once.
0: Fernando, how much champagne last night?
5: A good amount, Marcus. A very good amount. <laughs> Monaco's own
0: Fernanda Augusta Pacheco there. Thank you very much. And that's all for this edition of The Briefing. It was produced by Paige Reynolds. Our researcher was Monica Lillis and our studio manager was Kelly McLean. The Briefing is back tomorrow at the same time at midday here in London, 8am in New York City. I am Marcus Hippie. Goodbye and thanks for listening.